about the man who went to the doctor because everything was wrong and everything was hurting. The doctor came into the room and he said, how can I help you today? And this gentleman said, doc, everything hurts. And the doctor said, are you, are you serious? I, I don't know that that's possible. Everything? And he said, yes, everything. And the doctor said, okay, I want to try something. Touch your head for me. The guy touched his head and he winced in pain. The doctor said, interesting. Okay, touch your shoulder for me. And the guy touched his shoulder and again was in pain. Okay, touch your chest. Same thing happened. How about your hip? Same thing. Touch your knee. Same thing. And the doctor said, sir, you, you have a broken finger. <laughs> Isn't it true that often in life, when it seems like it's everything, it could be just one thing? Sometimes we get overwhelmed in life with the, the circumstances that we're facing or the season we're in and You've heard people say, I don't think I can take just one more thing because it feels like it's all building up. And as we step back and we look at our reality, sometimes it can feel like the relationships aren't going well, the kids aren't doing well, the job's not going well, and it just feels overwhelming. It feels like everything. But what if, what if it's just one thing? This morning, we're beginning a brand new series called What If? And we're going to be looking at this the next few weeks, and we're going to be learning from some stories in Scripture, people that walked through seasons where it could have been a lot of things, but in reality it was just one thing. And as I've been praying through this and getting ready for this series, talking with our team, spent a few days up in Blue Ridge, Georgia this week, up in the mountains where it was 38 degrees at night, which was awesome to vacation there, don't want to live there. But it was, it was a nice little change of pace. One of the guys on our board of directors, Robbie and his bride, Tina, they came over, and we were just talking about the future of C3 and kind of processing some things. And I, I got to tell you, I, I am more excited about this series than any we've ever done because I think there is greater potential for God to do something very special in our lives in this series. And here's why. I think we've forgotten how to live what if. I think there are a lot of people that look at their lives and they, they want more. And maybe that's you. you. You want more. You want a bigger life. You want more of life. But the longer you've lived, some dreams have begun to fade. You've lost the hope that certain things will become a reality. And, and while you want a bigger life and you want more life, if you're a Christ follower, you want to be used by God in a significant way, you want to experience, remember Jesus when he was on earth said, I came to earth so you could experience a full life, an abundant life. You, you want that. But often we have no idea how to get it. And so what if fades to what is? And I think one of the greatest tragedies, because we only get to do this one time, one of the greatest tragedies in life is I, I believe there are a lot of people living a less than life when it doesn't have to be like that. And especially those of us that are Christ followers. I think often as a follower of Jesus, we live far beneath our privilege. So, what if? And this morning, I want to go to the pages of the Old Testament. In fact, early in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel. To a familiar story, if you grew up in church or you're familiar with the Bible, you're going to know this story. If not, we're going to walk through it. And I think there's some deep truth in this passage. It's the story of David before he becomes king of Israel. 
and Goliath, the giant that he faces. We're going to drop into this story that's already begun, and we're dropping onto a battlefield where the children of Israel are on one side and the Philistine army is on the other side, and a war is about to take place. An ancient war was nothing like war today. We kind of take an ancient warfare and we've glamorized it and fictionalized it. We've even sanitized it. Movies like Braveheart or Gladiator, like we, we, we sort of clean it up and we get into it and we like the action. And th- there's some people say, oh man, I just love that kind of action. <clears throat> when in reality, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the screen. That's nothing compared to real life where you see it up close. You smell the blood. You face the fear. Today in war, we kill at a distance. But in that day, it was up close and people would look right into the eyes of somebody they were about to kill. And it's in that kind of setting where the war is going to be bloody. There's going to be intense loss of life. In fact, in the ancient culture, when you went to war, often the men would fight with no clothes on at all. Because if you managed to survive the battle, you would have blood all over you. Some of it yours, some of it other people's, you're not sure. But if you wore clothing and you got stabbed and any of the clothing got under the skin, you might live through the battle, but you would die of an infection. A very brutally intense time. It's in that scene, that moment, that we're going to drop into an event that happened in history where a war is about to take place. Why? Because some of you are in a war. You're fighting for your marriage. You're fighting for one of your kids. Isn't it true as a parent that you're never happier than your most unhappy child? You're fighting for your future. You're fighting to turn some things around. You recognize some mistakes that have been made, and you you know there's some areas where life has treated you unfairly. So you try to accept responsibility for your part in it, but you recognize the part that was beyond your control, but whatever it was, you, you want that line in the sand moment. What if it could be different, and what if it could be better, and what if I could step into something where that doesn't define me, and life could be more than. 1 Samuel chapter 17, the Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. Soko, not Soho, Soko in Judah. They weren't going to target. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. They have a strategy. They've put in place a plan. They've drawn up their battle lines. Because sometimes having a plan makes us feel good. But what happens when the size of the enemy we face or the obstacle or the challenge we have to get through is so big that our plan seems so inadequate? The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, and with them the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. What does that mean? My man was nine feet, six inches tall. (laughs) Nine feet, six inches tall. That's Goliath. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. So his spear shaft, this was not a javelin spear that you would throw. This was a spear that he would hold in his hands, nine feet, six inches tall, and he would stab people. Often he would stand in battle behind the first line, and because he was so tall, reach over the first line and stab people. The iron point, the end of the spear weighed 600 shekels. That's 15 pounds. 
just the end of it. Goliath's armor weighed over 100 pounds. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Saul was their king, the first king of Israel. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. So I pick your best, send out your best, I'll fight. Whoever wins, they win for the whole nation. The other nation becomes slaves. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Wait, I thought you had a plan. I thought you drew up the battle lines. I thought you had a strategy. You knew you were going into war. Saul, you've been in war before. Israelite army, you've fought wars before. This is not new. You're used to having to deal with this. You have a plan. You have a strategy. And yet the size of the giant you face erodes the plan you have. Because sometimes in life, we face giants. What is a giant? Chances are you're not going to face someone nine feet, six inches tall. I'm five foot eight. If I face someone nine feet, six inches tall, I'm not afraid because where I'm going to punch them, they won't be able to get up for a while. But no, I would be afraid. Listen, that's just the reality. You and I, what, what is a giant? A giant is what stands between you and the future God has for you and the future you desire. A giant is that thing that you face in life sometimes that is overwhelming. It is intimidating. It brings fear to your life. We all face giants. You had a plan and a strategy. What a great marriage would look like. And then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, a giant walks on the battlefield of your marriage. You had a plan and a strategy for how you would raise your kids and what school they would go to and the kind of education they would get. All of a sudden, unexpectedly, you find yourself in a battle for one of your kids. We all face giants. And sometimes not in human form, never nine feet, six inches tall, but often just in the circumstances of life. There is something overwhelming. There's an obstacle that there's no way to go around it. You have to get through it to make progress in your life, to get to the other side. You feel like God has a plan for you. You feel like there's some promises that God has made to you. You look into the future, and you saw it on a bumper sticker or a coffee cup, Jeremiah 29, 11, where God said, I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you and give you a future. And you know somewhere that's probably written down in here, you just can't see it because all you see standing in front of you is the giant. Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. But you had a plan, dismayed and terrified. You're the children of God, dismayed and terrified. You've been in this place before. You've gone to battle. You, you've won victories that you shouldn't have won. Sometimes the giant we face seems to somehow erase the memory of what God has done in our past. Dismayed and terrified. Now imagine being part of the Israelites, part of the Israelite army. Goliath is walking out every day. He did this twice a day for over 40 days. Taunting, challenging, twice a day, in the morning, in the evening, he would come out. Anybody, anybody, do you have anybody that's not a coward? Is there anybody willing to come and fight? Do you really believe that your God is the biggest and the baddest? Every day, day after day, for two, twice a day. 
If you're in the Israelite army, you know what you're thinking, what they, what they all thought. Well, Saul is our king. He should go. He's the king. Number one, he should go because he's king. Number two, he's the tallest guy we've got. See, the people of Israel, when they chose a king, God did not want them to have a king. He wanted to be their king and their ruler and their leader. But they begged God for something that was different than the plan he had for them because often we want things that are different than what God has for us because we think we know better. So they chose a king based on what he looked like on the outside, tall and handsome, not recognizing that inside he's a coward. That when the heat gets turned up, he's going to go hide and be terrified and dismayed. And if you're in that army, day after day after day, as the days pass and Goliath is taunting and Goliath is mocking, if you're in the Israelite army, you begin to lose hope. Your king begins to lose credibility. And when hope fades, the giants just get bigger and bigger. How did it happen? Because we place our hope in what we depend on. They were depending on Saul instead of depending on God. They were relying on what they saw on the outside rather than what God could do inside them and through them. But it's true today. We place our hope in what we depend on. You depend on your marriage. You place your hope in your marriage. And if somehow it falls apart, your hope vanishes. You place your hope on the job offer, the promotion, the career. You place your hope on saving this much. You place your hope on the stock market. You, you, you place your hope in, in a few months. You're going to go in and you're going to vote on president for this nation. But don't, don't get nervous. I'm not going there. I'm not going. I'm just going to go partway there. It is astounding to me the way people that love Jesus talk. And I'm not saying that the election's not important. It is. Man, there are people who have shed their blood and died so that we can enjoy the freedoms we have. I think voting's important. I think as an American citizen, we should vote. I just think we could keep, should keep the perspective. I'm voting on president, not a savior. I already have a savior. I don't know who the president's going to be. I know who my king is, and ultimately my hope is in my king. If you're placing your hope in a donkey or an elephant, you need help. I mean, haven't they all shown you that people are imperfect? Haven't they all shown you that everybody lies? But before we get too critical, so do you and I. Listen, our hope is in Jesus, but in life it's so easy to shift our hope to somebody or something else. We, we place our hope in what we depend on, and we place our hope in who we depend on. David shows up. David is not in the Israelite army. David is a shepherd boy whose father has sent him on an errand to take some snacks to his three older brothers who are in the Israelite army. And as he shows up, they begin to mock him and make fun of him. David is 15 years old, barely has his learner's permit, couldn't even drive there, had to walk. And now he's standing among soldiers who are terrified. But David has this kind of courage and this strength because David was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. David was not placing his hope in Saul. He was placing his hope in God. He wasn't placing his hope in some person. He was placing his hope in God, the God who invites us to call him Father. Sometimes people come into the life of the church and they say, man, I, I, I just have to tell you, I, I, think, uh, I think you're one of the greatest pastors I've ever known. And I think, well, first, you, you don't know me. <laughs> and secondly, just wait a minute. You've changed. 
Because I've come to understand, if, if you lead anything, if you lead a company, an organization, a classroom, if you lead your family, if you lead anything, you are only one decision away from your biggest fan becoming your loudest critic. It's just reality. So I don't place my hope in what people think. I understand and I appreciate encouragement. But listen, I don't do what I do for anybody. I, I do what I do for an audience of one. That's it. And David was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. Verse 11 again, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. David comes on the scene, he's bringing a snack, and he begins to hear what Goliath is saying, and he views what's taking place with an entirely different perspective. Do you see the giant like the Israelite army did or like David did? They were dismayed and terrified. David is just offended. He's offended that someone would dare talk to the army of the living God like that. He's offended, not personally offended for himself, but offended for God. So verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Now imagine the men standing around, soldiers, listening to a 15-year-old boy say this. The arrogance of that, no, 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 no. Arrogance is when we get puffed up about what we think we can do, and life tends to show us that we can't. Confidence is entirely different than arrogance. Confidence that David has is, my God is bigger than any giant that's going to walk onto this field of battle. My God is bigger than any giant that's going to come into my life. My God is bigger than any obstacle I'm going to face in my future. He's asking not with arrogance, but with confidence. And I wonder if he was somewhat in shock as he looks around at the Israelite army, the children of God, wondering, nobody, nobody, nobody. So what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And I wonder if standing around, someone said to him, I, I never really thought of it like that. We just saw nine feet, six inches, 15 pound tip of the spear. 100 pounds of armor laughing and mocking us and every day that passes our confidence erodes a little bit more that that's all we see we never saw him as a disgrace toward god and toward our nation who is this uncircumcised philistine that he should defy the armies of the living god why would he call him uncircumcised philistine maybe eye level that's like okay You've never had the procedure. I, I don't know, but, but I, I think it's bigger than that. Parents, see three kids. See three kids. I didn't even say that in the first service. See, that was special for y'all. <laughs> Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What, why is he saying this? Now, there's something you can miss at first glance in reading these verses, and I don't want you to miss it. I think it's very, very important. There's a homiletical principle. Homiletics is the science of how to interpret the scriptures. It's how we try to get to what God is saying rather than putting our own opinion or spin on something we read. And there's a process that you go through when you, what's called exegeting a passage and looking at the meaning of the words in the original language so that you can really try to pull out of the scriptures what God is saying. Because if I just try to read a verse, you've known somebody's tried to read a verse to just prove their agenda. Listen, God did not write this book to help out my agenda. God wrote this book so that I could understand his heart for me and his agenda for life. 
So one of, the, one of the homiletical principles is that if something is repeated, you pay more attention to it. If God says something once, it's important. He's God. But if God takes the time through his Holy Spirit to inspire people to write something down thousands of years ago that he's going to protect and preserve as his living word to speak into our lives, if God takes the time to repeat something, we need to pay attention and look a little bit deeper and see what it's there. So in verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Ten verses later, verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Uncircumcised twice. So, what is circumcision? Well, circumcision is when... No, I'm not doing that. (laughs) What is circumcision beyond the physical? Circumcision represented a covenant. A covenant God made with his people. If you read the scriptures, you find all kinds of covenants between God and people. In fact, the New Testament, another word for testament, is covenant. There's the Old Testament, Old Covenant, and then the New Covenant. And covenant are promises from God toward people that enter this arrangement with him. A covenant is technically a covering. In that area, in that agreement between me and God, he is covering me, he's protecting me, he's providing for me. This umbrella sits by the front door of my home. And most of the time when it's raining outside, you know what I do? I leave it by the front door of my home. Now that's bizarre, and the reason that's bizarre for me, maybe this doesn't apply to you. The reason that's bizarre for me is I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm, I'm bald. God only gave so many of us perfect heads to show off, and I happen to get one of them. But, but when it's raining, raindrops on this head drive me slap monkey crazy. And yet I still don't take the time to grab this even though it's right by my front door, and walk out the door making sure that I don't have to feel or deal with the storm. A covenant is a covering. Now, here's what this means. If you're a follower of Christ, listen, you have access to something that's designed and given by God to be a protection and provision in your life. If you're a Christ follower, it's not that you don't have what you need. It's that you're not under what you need to be under, perhaps. Umbrellas do not stop the rain. They just stop the rain from raining on you. And so God gives us, as Christ followers, his protection and his provision so that we are covered from the storm. So when I live under the authority of God and under his authority for my life, I'm protected. See, but if I just leave this sitting by the front door of my home, it is of absolutely no value to me. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not that you don't have access to the presence of God in your life. It's just that you're not allowing it to cover you. In the same way, if I just leave this book sitting on a shelf in my home, it does absolutely no good to me. It's when I open it up and use it as a covering and do what God's teaching me and live life according to what he says that I'm protected. How often in life do we ignore what God wrote down and then live the consequences of it? So there is this covenant, and and what David is saying is, that guy, he's a giant, but it doesn't matter how big he is, he does not have the protection and the provision of God. I do. 
at 15 years old, never having fought a battle, having absolutely no military armor at all, never having faced a giant like this. Oh, he's dealt with a lion, he's dealt with a bear, but never nine feet, six inches tall, 100 pounds of armor, and a spear where the end of it is 15 pounds. Never a guy who's never lost a battle like that. He's not dealt with that before, and yet he recognizes that in all of his inadequacy, in all of his lack of ability, he has access to a covering, a covenant that is from God. And God in you, when you have that covenant, is bigger than any obstacle in your future. Any obstacle. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. What's he talking about? Saul finds out that there's someone that's willing to go face Goliath. Can you imagine how relieved he must be? Cowards are always relieved when somebody else steps up. He's sitting in whatever his throne room is and whatever that tent was out on the battlefield, and they're bringing the person to him that's going to go face Goliath, and he had to be relieved until he saw it. You're bringing me a little boy. Like he, he dismisses David, but before David walks out, he says, King Saul, please just let me say this. There was an occasion... Where I was out with the sheep, I'm, I'm a shepherd, that's what I do, and a lion came and grabbed one of the sheep, and rather than just protecting the rest and evading the danger, I went after that lion, got the sheep, and I killed the lion with my bare hands, and not long after that, a bear came, and it was another occasion, and got one of the sheep, and rather than protecting what I had, I went after the one, and I killed that bear, and I rescued that sheep. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, not because I'm good, not because I have it figured out, not because I have a resume of many, many victories in my past. This Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. He says this is what's going to happen. That kind of faith. Let me ask you a question. He is signing up to go by himself into a valley and face Goliath. Do you think he was afraid? Somehow we've bought into this idea that if we have faith, we'll never have fear. Listen, faith and fear can live at the same address, but when they live at the same address, faith is always bigger than fear. Faith doesn't mean I function with an absence of fear and I'm just delusional. No, that's not what faith is. Faith recognizes the cost from a human perspective. Faith recognizes, hey, there can be some fear in me because I am human. It's just when I lean into the faith and trust the faith more than letting the fear guide me that I overcome whatever giant I'm facing. What if, even though what's standing in between you and your preferred future is intimidating, and overwhelming, and causes you to be afraid. What if you could still function in faith in spite of the fear you feel? David walks out on the battlefield, and while he's walking, can you imagine? Can you imagine when Goliath sees this 15-year-old boy, shepherd boy, coming with no armor, no sword, no spear, a few rocks and a slingshot? Can you imagine what Goliath must have thought? Can you imagine the Philistine army as they begin to mock and they begin to laugh? And then David, as he approaches, makes this pronouncement where he basically says, it doesn't really matter how big you are. It doesn't really matter what your history is. 
I've walked onto this battlefield not under my own authority. I've walked here under the covering, the covenant, the protection of a holy God, and I'm going to kill you today. And he does. Do you think he would have been able to do that without the covenant or the protection? No. What does it mean? It means as you and I face giants in life, and we will face them, the more we lean into faith and the more we exercise our faith and the more we trust God even when everything in life is screaming that we shouldn't, and the more we trust and have hope in God even when we're walking in hopeless scenarios, the more faith becomes our default position. And then the man or woman whose hope is in the Lord need not fear. It's still there, but we're able to push it down and diminish it because our faith has taught us that God is faithful. Our faith has taught us that it all depends on God anyway, not on me. Our faith has taught us that God, when he said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, he's always kept his promise. So that same David would also be used by God to write some of the Psalms we have in the book of Psalms. And on remembering the occasion with Goliath, David writes these words in Psalm 25, in you, my, in you Lord, my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. I wonder if while he's walking down into the valley, instead of thinking to himself about how big the giant is and how scared he is and how intimidating what stands in front of him is, I wonder if while he's walking, he's simply repeating to himself, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. What if when you woke up in the morning and opened your eyes, when I wake up in the morning and open my eyes, you know that moment when there's something going on in your life that's causing pain and struggle, when you have a giant that you're facing in your life, you know that moment you wake up and when you first open your eyes, you feel okay, but there's that thought of, I shouldn't feel okay. What is it? Oh, 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 that's it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like when you open your eyes, it's not there, but it comes to you. What if in that moment, rather than focusing on the giant you're facing, what if in that moment you begin to say with David, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Today, God, I put my trust in you. Today, God, I know that you are able. Today, God, I know that you love me. Today, God, I know that you're with me. I'm asking you to walk with me through this day. He continues, guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior. Not just my Savior after this life. Not just my Savior that gets me to heaven. You're my Savior in this moment. You're the Savior that will walk with me through the day. You're the Savior that will provide everything I need. And my hope is in you all day long. Because I'm going to need you today all day long. What if, instead of focusing on what you're afraid of and what stands in front of you and the struggle that you're having to deal with, what if every morning you said, God, today, you are my Lord, you are my God, I am trusting you, guide me today. It's something a king would never say. David would go on to become king of Israel, the second king. And thousands of years later today, whose flag flies over the nation of Israel? The flag of David. Kings don't ask for help. Kings don't ask for guidance unless they understand there's a bigger king and a better guide. And so David, even as king, says, guide me in your truth, teach me, for you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in you. Not in myself, not in my experience, not in my talents, although I'm grateful you've gifted me in a number of ways, but ultimately, my hope is in you because you alone are God. So David kills Goliath. How? David only did what King Saul failed to do because David saw what King Saul failed to see. 
He only did what King Saul wouldn't do. If all you see is what you see, then you're not seeing everything there is to see. Whatever's in front of you, whatever obstacle, whatever giant you're facing, if all you see is what you see, then you're not seeing everything there is to see. Have you ever seen or looked in the face of God? If all you see is what you see, you're not seeing everything there is to see. And there is a big God that has invited us to call him Father, that sent his spirit to live inside of us if you're a Christ follower. And the spirit of Jesus in you is bigger than any giant you will face. We don't become who we'd like to be until we're willing to to be who others are too afraid to be. We don't become who we'd like to be until we're willing to be who others are afraid to be. Hey, 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 stop settling. Stop telling yourself that other marriages are just like this too. Stop telling yourself that everybody's unhappy at their job anyway. Stop telling yourself that this is just life and it's the way it has to be. Stop. I wonder how many of us will step into eternity realizing we missed the life God has for us because we settled and we looked around and we said, oh, it's just normal. Normal isn't working. We don't become who we'd like to be until we're willing to be who others are too afraid to be. So this week, what if we put our hope in the Lord? What if this week we put our hope in the Lord? What if this week we say, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. I need you all day. I'm trusting you. What if the future God has for you is bigger than anything you've ever dreamed of? David was unqualified. David was unable. David was untalented in this area. There was no reason at all that David should be able to kill Goliath except for one simple fact. God was with him. That's it. What if you could live a life bigger than your doubts? Maybe the thing intimidating you as you look into the future is the you you see yourself becoming and don't like. Maybe you've let yourself down so often and so much that you've convinced yourself it's just who you are. You're just a young little shepherd boy who really has no ability and God would never pick or never choose. You've looked around and you've seen the King Saul's and you look at the people that are successful that everybody else would pick and you've sold yourself short because there is a God who invites you to call him father and says you are intensely valuable and his plans for you would blow your mind if you just begin to trust him. What if the Jesus in you is bigger than all that you fear? What if you understood and you begin to intentionally live? It won't happen accidentally. This morning is an absolute waste of all of our time if it's just a moment where we think about this and go, huh, this is a waste of our time. Even if we just go, that's true. The only way this has traction in your life and mine is if this moment leads to a momentum in our lives where we change our thinking and we begin to stop focusing on the giants we face and we focus more on the God who gave his son to die for us and loves us and has stepped into our future already and knows the plans he has for us. What if? Well, I can't. One of the things we do on our leadership team, on our staff, is 
uh, we talk about plans for the future. We talk about things that we want to see God do and ways that we believe God is going to lead our church into the future. And often, sometimes I'll, I'll have crazy ideas. And we'll be at staff meeting, and I'll say, hey, what, what do y'all think about this? And sometimes when I say this, I know this is going to shock you. Sometimes people are like, um, huh. Um, and sometimes they should. Or sometimes somebody else will have an idea. One of the things we try to do on our team, and one of the things I would encourage you to do if you lead anything, learn to celebrate the wow before the how. Because how will prematurely kill wow. What are you talking about? What if everything I've said is true? Bigger than that, what if everything God says is true? Well, I just don't know how that would apply. I don't know how. Whoa, 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 whoa. Before you get to the how. We'll get to how. How's important. But first, let's feel the wow for a minute. Let's think about the reality of what if it's true? What if God does love me? What if God does have an incredible future for me? What if the Jesus in me is bigger than anything I'm going to face? What if that's true? Live in that moment. Don't let how rob you of wow. Because as long as there's a God and you pursue him and I pursue him, how will be taken care of? Sometimes, sometimes I'll, I'll ask somebody on our team, hey, I want to do this. What, what do you think? And 99% of the time, man, it's good. We have an incredible team. But every now and then I deal with kind of a, I, I don't know. And so I'll ask it a different way that helps us to get to wow. I'll, I'll say this, and you, you, you can use this, and it might work or you might get slapped. But I'll say, okay, well, what if your life depended on it? Or what if your spouse's life depended on it? How would you do it? And what I'm doing is I'm trying to redirect to let's, let's live in wow for a moment and think about the possibility because you and I have convinced ourselves out of things God has for us because we think we're responsible for how and we're not. He is. He is. So this week, what if? I also want to give you a date because what if doesn't just apply to your life and mine, it applies to our church. November the 10th. If you're a part of C3, I want you to be here November 10th. We're going to talk about what if and how it applies to the life of C3. You want a bigger story. You want God to use you in a bigger way. You want to be a part of something special. We're going to talk about it November 10th. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for the reality of your love, your grace, and your mercy. I thank you that you lay out in the scriptures a way that we can we can know you. Thank you for simple stories like the one of this shepherd boy who became king because of you. God, I pray that as we roll through this week, we would shift our thinking on purpose to think about the wow of your love for each of us, the wow of your plan, the what if. It's all true. What if we can trust? What if we can hold on to our faith? What if our faith can be bigger than our doubts and our fears? Father, we're looking to you this week because we desperately need you. Our complete trust and confidence is in you and you alone. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here this morning. And you don't, you don't have the spiritual umbrella by the front door of the home of your life. You don't have access to it because there's never been a moment in your life where you've committed your life to Christ. You know about God, but you don't know him personally. Hey, this morning, I want to invite you to pray a very simple prayer. 
if you'd like to commit your life to Christ this morning and begin a personal, intimate relationship with the living God. If you'd like to do that, you can pray this prayer out loud or you can pray it quietly in your heart. The Bible says in Matthew that Jesus knows even our thoughts. But if you'd like to begin a relationship with God that is personal, just pray this prayer. Just say, Dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive my sin. And help me to live for you. As best I know how, I surrender my life to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. 